one of the finest bell letter scholars of America. These were the words of none other than famous writer and poet Edgar Allan Poe, as is documented in the Detroit News article titled, Lewis Cass, Michigan's Most Accomplished Governor. The man Poe was referring to was Michigan governor and presidential candidate Lewis Cass. Cass was a candidate in both the presidential elections of 1844 and 1848. Considering the fact that Cass received such high praise from the likes of Poe, one might have expected that he would inevitably have become president once achieving national recognition. However, the attempts made by Cass to become president were stymied, in large part by his white supremacist beliefs and policies. From Cass's unsuccessful presidential campaigns, historical analysts can glean the impact of the growing divisions over slavery in the United States and the ensuing consequences of Cass not taking a more morally courageous political platform in the wake of the nation's national reckoning over slavery. I am Paxton Phillips, and this is Politics with Paxton. Cass attained some of his early political capital off of championing white supremacist beliefs and policies. As Steve Inskeep explains in his book titled Jackson Land, President Andrew Jackson, Cherokee Chief John Ross, and a Great American Land Grab, quote, arguments over Indian removal came in several forms. There was, for example, the straight racist argument. End quote. Inciting one such proponent of the blatantly racist policies to forcibly remove and relocate Native American communities from their homes, Inskeep naturally brings up Cass. Cass was so abundantly and unmistakably racist against Native Americans that, according to Inskeep, Cass declared his belief in a magazine article that every single Native American, quote, shared the identical upbringing, and behaved in the same way, reckless of consequences. He is the child of impulse, unrestrained by moral considerations, whatever his passions prompt he does. Indians had decreased in population, not because of war, social convulsion, and European diseases, but because they resisted civilization. They were clinging with a deaf grasp to their old ways, to roam the forest at will, to pursue their game, to attack their enemies, to spend the rest of their lives in listless indolence, and to be ready at all times to die. These are the principal occupations of an Indian. They must be pushed away from civilized areas for their own good." End quote. These were such blatantly racist statements by Cass. However, he felt emboldened to make them, according to Inskeep, as a result of the experience Cass had with encroaching on Native American territory himself. In the War of 1812, Cass fought in the Battle of Thames, as documented by Inskeep, in which prominent Shawnee leader Tecumseh was killed. As governor of Michigan, Cass led an expedition into territory in which Native American communities resided, and, as is explained by Inskeep, felt that his, quote, experience on the frontier made him an Indian expert. We speak of them as they are, as we have found them after a long and intimate acquaintance, Cass wrote in his article urging removal. Government is unknown among them. They have no criminal code, no courts, no officers, no punishments. End quote. One note that I believe is particularly pertinent about Cass's racist musings about Native Americans is his emphasis on the perceived lack of criminal codes or punishments that Native American communities possessed. 
It is important to acknowledge that Cass's understanding of Native Americans was incredibly limited, and he perceived them through the distorted lens of a white supremacist. However, beyond his obvious lack of understanding of Native Americans, I believe that Cass's musings also present an interesting reflection of how heavily the United States came to overemphasize its own reliance on punishments and the criminal code. As Drew Kahn explains in the CNN article titled, Five Facts Behind America's High Incarceration Rate, which was published on April 21st, 2019, the United States has repeatedly ranked as the nation with the highest incarceration rate in the world, with an incarceration rate so high that it even surpasses the likes of authoritarian countries such as Russia and the Philippines. The high population size is also not the sole cause of the United States' incredibly high incarceration rate, since China and India, which both have more people than the United States, do not have as many people incarcerated as the United States does. As Chris Hedges analyzes in the Smithsonian Magazine article titled, Why Mass Incarceration Defines Us as a Society, which was published in December of 2012, quote, the United States has less than 5% of the world's population, but imprisons a quarter of the world's inmates. Most of those 2.3 million inmates are people of color. One of every three black men in their 20s is in jail or prison, on probation or parole, or bound in some other way to the criminal justice system." End quote. This situation of the United States adopting a punitive punishment-oriented criminal justice system that enables mass incarceration has existed for centuries. As I explained in my Politics with Paxton podcast episode titled History of Prisons in America, this system was arguably first set in motion by the Auburn prison system that was endorsed by United States President James Madison. The United States being dominated by its punishment-centric criminal justice system seems to have already been well-established by the time Cass argued for the removal of Native American communities. Therefore, I think it is noteworthy that Cass pinpointed the United States punishment-centric criminal code as a defining feature of the nation. Cass seemed to believe that this criminal justice system made the United States superior to other communities. However, this was simply not the case, and it is because of individuals like Cass the United States often set a poor example on the world stage. The abhorrently racist arguments that Cass made for the removal of Native American communities resulted in his public promotion. As Inskeep explains, while United States President Andrew Jackson was advocating for the removal of various Native American communities, thus setting in motion events that would result in the abominable Trail of Tears. Quote, it was important for Jackson to have such a prominent Northern supporter for what was being painted as a Southern initiative. Jackson liked Cass and would eventually give him oversight of federal Indian policy. End quote. Cass was rewarded for spouting such painstakingly white supremacist rhetoric by Jackson. The misguided lesson that Cass seemed to take from this experience was one that would continue to inspire the trajectory of his public life. Promoting white supremacy in a nation controlled by racist leaders would ensure the success of Cass's career. 
Cass, having become Jackson's Secretary of War, wielded his power with authoritarian abandon to enforce his racist agenda to remove Native Americans from their homes. As Inskeep recounts, Jackson sent Brigadier General John E. Wool to facilitate the removal of the Cherokee Nation under the terms of the Treaty of Nuichota which was an unfair treaty that allowed the United States to claim land belonging to the Cherokee Nation and offer little compensation in return. According to Inskeep, Wool discovered that the majority of the Cherokee people did not support the Treaty of Nuichota, did not believe it would be enforced, and were not prepared to move. John Ross, the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, and 32 other Cherokee leaders signed a letter declaring that, as is documented by Inskeep, the Treaty of Nuichota was, quote, a fraud on the government of the United States and an act of oppression on the Cherokee people, end quote. As Inskeep describes, Jackson's War Department, presumably headed by Cass, ordered Wool to stop communicating with Ross. According to Inskeep, quote, Wool repeatedly voiced sympathy for ordinary Cherokees and even protested a plan for some law-abiding Creeks in Cherokee territory to be dragged like so many beasts to the emigration camp. The administration became unnerved by the general's reports. Whose side was the army on? Secretary of War Cass wrote the general with a warning about disloyalty. If any officer of the army should countenance resistance or opposition to the treaty, you will arrest him. Wool never did countenance resistance. He thought Cherokees should move west for their own good, but continued warning of the risk of disaster. He predicted that when the May 1838 deadline arrived, it would be hard to avoid the shedding of human blood. It is sufficient to say that the rights of this people have been too often disregarded, too often trampled upon, too often violated, without a cause or justification, with impunity not to have sunk deep into their hearts." End quote. The fact that Cass seemed to threaten Wool with facing charges of disloyalty just for warning, in retrospect quite accurately, about how deadly the Trail of Tears could be, demonstrates the type of despotic leadership style that Cass adopted when given some power. Cass's treatment of Wool does give historical analysts some insight into how he may have governed the United States if he was elected president. Despite Wool having not made any attempt to countenance resistance, to the policies that Cass and Jackson supported to remove Native American communities from their homes, Cass seemed to warn Wool that any actions short of complete and utter obedience to his and Jackson's insidious and morally bankrupt attempts to acquire the lands owned by Native Americans would be perceived as disloyalty. What makes this so particularly dangerous is that it is so important for presidents to surround themselves not with yes-men, 
but rather with critical thinkers that are willing to offer insights that could save presidents from making poor decisions. However, clearly, Cass did not seem to value Wool's judgments about the unpopularity of the Treaty of Nuachota amongst the Cherokee Nation or the perilous capacity that Jackson and Cass's policies regarding removing and relocating Native American communities from their homes had to result in a potential catastrophic loss of life. If Cass had been elected president, these troubling anecdotes regarding his support for Jackson's Native American removal policies and his warning to Wool serve as a potential demonstration of how tyrannically Cass would have governed the country, unwilling to accept the opinion of anyone but himself. Had Cass actually listened to Wool's warnings and concerns, it is possible that the trail of tears in which, according to the National Geographic article titled The Indian Removal Act and the Trail of Tears, thousands of individuals in the Cherokee Nation died, could have been avoided. Nevertheless, both Cass and Jackson evaded taking accountability for their role in instigating the Trail of Tears. However, despite Cass's incessant loyalty to Jackson, Jackson ultimately chose not to advocate for Cass when he vied for the 1844 Democratic presidential nomination. As Joseph Whelan highlights in his book titled Invading Mexico, America's Continental Dream and the Mexican War, 1846 to 1848, leaders of the Democratic Party dismissed Cass in his efforts to become the 1844 Democratic presidential nominee. And Jackson subsequently put his support behind his protege, James Knox Polk, to be the 1844 Democratic presidential nominee. Losing out to Polk, who ultimately went on to win the presidency in 1844, however, did not sour Cass on Polk's presidential policies. As president, Polk instigated and largely manufactured the Mexican-American War. Cass was a major supporter of the Mexican-American War in Congress. As Whelan recounts, quote, Michigan Senator Lewis Cass declared with high drama, a hostile army is in our country. Our frontier has been penetrated. A foreign banner floats over the soil of the Republic. Our citizens have been killed while defending their country. A great blow has been aimed at us. And while we were talking and asking for evidence, it may have been struck and our army annihilated, end quote. Cass even invoked a religious undertone to his advocacy for the Mexican-American War. As Whelan documents, Cass declared that, quote, I do not believe there is a government in Christendom if it felt itself able, which, under similar circumstances, would not have done as we did, end quote. Considering the religious undertones that existed in several of the international conflicts that the United States has involved itself in, particularly through the United States' imperialist ventures and wars with Native American nations, this statement by Cass definitely suggests a concerning ideology that he may have followed if elected president. However, it also showcases that had Cass been elected president in 1844, he, just like Polk, probably would have incited the Mexican-American War 
in order to acquire more territory. Cass even raised a moral argument in favor of going to war primarily to acquire more land by warning of the dangers of overpopulation. As Whelan illustrates, quote, If America did not expand, yet continued to double her population every 22 years, Senator Cass of Michigan grimly warned, the Neo-Jeffersonian wage-dependency nightmare would become actuality. Infected with Europe's social evils, chief among them cities crowded with landless wage earners, America would soon see, as Europe had, that minds of the highest order are pressed down by adverse circumstances without the power of free exertion. There is no starting point for them. Hence, the struggles that are ever going on, I trust we are far removed from all this, but to remove us further yet, we want almost unlimited power of expansion. That is our safety valve. But Ohio Senator Thomas Corwin scoffed that the United States' 20 million people already had a billion acres and did not need more land. If I were a Mexican, I would tell you, have you not room in your country to bury your dead men? If you come into mine, we will greet you with bloody hands and welcome you to hospitable graves." End quote. As egregiously misguided as Cass's beliefs were, his ideology regarding the perceived imperative for the United States to continue expanding meant that, under a Cass presidency, it is quite plausible that the United States may have needlessly gone to war in order to acquire additional land at the cost of so many lives. The Mexican-American War, according to Whelan, had the highest ratio of deaths to participants of any of the United States' wars. Yet, to Cass, this horrific loss of life seemingly was acceptable if it meant acquiring more land to satiate fears of overpopulation. Not only did Cass lay the rhetorical groundwork for the United States, invasions of other sovereign nations, but he also laid the groundwork for the dehumanization of the Mexican people for the purposes of garnering political capital. As Whelan indicates, when arguing why the forces of the United States needed to go on the offensive against Mexican forces during the Mexican-American War, Cass peddled a disturbing metaphor, warning that if the United States did not go on the offensive, quote, the proud bird will soon be powerless and the reptile will coil itself up to strike at its leisure and at its pleasure, end quote. It is really quite questionable that Cass favorably compared the United States to a proud bird, whereas dehumanized Mexico as a malicious reptile, coiling itself up like a snake. What is particularly unnerving is the fact that this very metaphor for Mexico, as being a reptile, has been used since the time of Cass in order to demonize Mexico for the petty purpose of scoring political capital. United States President Donald Trump shockingly employed an almost identical metaphor for immigrants, particularly being of note considering Trump's condemnation of Mexican immigrants in particular. 
as Karen Pynchon explains in the PBS Frontline article titled Insects, Floods, and The Snake, What Trump's Use of Metaphors Reveals, quote, In the song, The Snake, which Trump recited at many of his 2016 campaign rallies, a tender-hearted woman finds a half-frozen snake on a path and rescues it, only to be bitten. In Trump's reading, the tale was a parable for the dangers of lax immigration policies, end quote. Pynchon elaborates on how, quote, For years, Donald Trump has used the snake to whip up racist fervor at raucous rallies, said Austrian-language researcher Katerina Piotruk. In a 2018 academic paper, she and a colleague analyzed the role of metaphors in Trump's nomination acceptance speech, his victory speech, and his inaugural address. Across all three, Trump used nearly 350 metaphors, making up 85% of the speeches. Comparing immigrants to animals isn't a new political trick. The Nazis frequently referred to Jews as vermin. And metaphor theory? is its own research field in linguistics. There's also a growing body of work showing why metaphors can be effective motivators. Populist leaders like Boris Johnson often use metaphors to compare immigrants to animals, said Peter Truk. Yet, Trump went a few steps further, she added, by using comparisons to insects and other lower-order animals such as snakes, a move that can trigger more disgust or fear. In those analogies, he often presents himself as the tamer of animals, end quote. What makes this particularly startling is that this is the exact same strategy that Cass used in his metaphor advocating for the United States to take a more aggressive offensive approach against Mexico. Cass compared the United States to a tame animal in the form of a proud bird, while simultaneously demonizing Mexico as a snaking reptile. While, as far as I can tell, Trump has not explicitly named Mexico in his metaphor in which he compares immigrants to snakes, his vitriol against Mexican immigrants in particular has been well documented. In Ava DuVernay's 13th documentary, formerly incarcerated activist Pat Nolan analyzes, quote, you heard it uh, with Donald Trump, not about blacks, but with Mexicans. You know, oh, well, they're rapists, murderers. Oh, and by the way, some of them may be good people. Oh boy, you know, where do you start on something like that? End quote. Nolan was referring to a statement that Trump made in his 2016 presidential announcement in which, as recounted by Eugene Scott in the Washington Post article titled Trump's Most Insulting and Violent Language, is often reserved for immigrants. Trump declared, quote, when Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you, they're not sending you, they're sending people that have lots of problems and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people, end quote. So, despite Trump not explicitly referencing Mexican immigrants in his snake metaphor, it stands to reason that they are some of the very first immigrants that Trump's supporters would think about when hearing Trump dehumanize immigrants as untrustworthy snakes. As Julie Hirschfield Davis and Michael D. Shear analyze in their book, 
titled Border Wars, Inside Trump's Assault on Immigration. While campaigning for president in Iowa, Trump, quote, seized on the lyrics of a 1968 Motown song to drive home his fearful message about the hidden dangers of refugees to the delight. Of about 1,300 Republican caucus voters, Trump read from The Snake, made famous by Al Wilson, in which a woman takes in an injured snake and nurses him back to health, only to have the reptile kill her with a venomous bite. In Trump's view, vulnerable-seeming refugees might seem sympathetic and in need of help, but what if they were in fact? conniving vicious snakes, preying on the benevolence of unsuspecting Americans only to turn on their benefactors at the first opportunity. And in case there was any doubt, Trump made it clear. I read it and I just thought it out together. He said, we have no idea what we are doing. We have no idea who we are taking in and we better be careful. End quote. While I believe that it is highly unlikely that Trump received any direct inspiration from Cass in dehumanizing immigrants, particularly those from Mexico, I do believe that the comments made by both Cass and Trump contribute to this political undercurrent within the United States of dehumanizing Mexico and its people for exploitative purposes. However, there is a bit of a slight discrepancy between the political platforms of Trump and Cass. As the History Gone Wilder Have History Will Travel YouTube video titled Election of 1848, What Happened, explains, the Whig Party generally espoused xenophobic anti-immigrant platforms in the presidential election of 1848. This was certainly a betrayal of the Whig Party of yesteryear, since, as the Ohio History Connection presentation titled William Henry Harrison showcases, in the presidential election of 1840, when William Henry Harrison, who became the United States' very first Wake president, was accused that he was against granting asylum to immigrants who were fleeing from the oppressive reigns of authoritarian rulers abroad, Harrison gave a speech in which he unequivocally highlighted that, quote, liberty is equally dear to all of us, and that it is our greatest boast that this is the land to which the persecuted of despotism can always fly with a certainty of being received by brethren in freedom." End quote. Harrison was unapologetically a supporter of refugees coming to the United States, which makes it all the more egregious that the Whig Party would turn its back on the ideals promoted by Harrison to pursue a nativist platform. According to the History Gone Wilder Have History Will Travel YouTube video titled Election of 1848, What Happened? Due to the Whig Party's general nativism in the presidential election of 1848, as well as the general liberal views of the Democratic Party, which Cass was the presidential nominee of, towards the reform movements of the era, immigrants generally sided with the Democratic Party in the presidential election of 1848. 
cast seemingly siding with the Democratic Party's more pro-immigration platform does represent a departure from Trump's much more nativist and xenophobic platform, as well as one of the few instances in which Cass did not use his power and influence to demean others in order to promote himself. Nevertheless, any empathy that Cass may have had for immigrants did not extend to the people of Mexico during the Mexican-American War, as, according to Whelan, Cass viciously prosecuted an offensive war against Mexico, rhetorically asking, quote, how long did the Roman wall keep the North Britons out of England? End quote. Similarly to how Cass was rewarded for his bigotry against Native Americans by Jackson by being appointed to his cabinet, Cass was seemingly rewarded by the Democratic Party for his ceaseless support for the unjust Mexican-American War. However, the United States had changed in the four years of Polk's presidency. Polk, pursuing a war with Mexico for the apparent purpose of acquiring new land, incited some divisive debates over the status of slavery in the territories acquired by the United States in the Mexican-American War. Representative David Wilmot advocated in Congress for all of the potential territories acquired by the United States in the Mexican-American War to ban slavery in the Wilmot Proviso. As Ray Tyler explains in the Teaching American History article titled, Was James K. Polk a Great President Considering the War with Mexico, the Mexican-American War, quote, and its aftermath also fueled the growing sectionalism in the country. Some opponents viewed the war's real purpose as supporting southern slave owners' desire to spread slavery into new territory. After the war, anti-slavery advocates backed what came to be known as Wilmot's Proviso, a proposal blocking slavery in any land acquired from Mexico, first proffered by Pennsylvania Congressman David Wilmot. Wilmot's Proviso was repeatedly introduced in Congress, which kept the issue of congressional authority to regulate slavery in the territories on the front burner, end quote. This increasing sectionalism ultimately came to an inflection point with the Civil War. In the presidential election of 1848, Cass, as is mentioned in the Martin Van Buren National Park Service article titled Election of 1848, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, supported the policy of popular sovereignty, in which each territory could decide for itself whether slavery would be legal within it. This policy of popular sovereignty indicates to historical analysts that Cass's prospective presidency likely would have turned out similarly to that of United States President Franklin Pierce's administration. As Martin H. Quitt explains in the Bill of Rights Institute article titled Kansas-Nebraska Act and Bleeding Kansas, Democratic Representative Stephen A. Douglas managed to secure, quote, President Franklin Pierce's reluctant approval of a new bill that divided the territory into two parts, Nebraska and Kansas, end quote. This bill, upon being signed into law by Pierce, was the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and it promoted the principles of popular sovereignty by enabling the denizens of the Kansas and Nebraska territories 
to decide for themselves whether they wanted Kansas and Nebraska to become states that condoned slavery or outlawed slavery. Quitt elaborates on how, quote, Several hundred pro-slavery men sacked the free state bastion of Lawrence, burning the elected governor's home, demolishing newspaper offices and the hotel, and looting homes. The strategy of non-resistance turned the sack into a moral victory for free staters. In Washington, Republican Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts condemned the crime against Kansas in a two-day speech in which he personally attacked Democratic Senator Andrew Butler of South Carolina. Butler's cousin in the House, Preston Brooks, also a Democrat, and from South Carolina, then caned Sumner into a bloody mess at his desk in the legislative chamber and gave him a concussion. Two nights later, abolitionist John Brown and his sons abducted and killed five pro-slavery settlers at Pottawatomie, Kansas. Bloody Sumner and Bloody Kansas brought the sectional division clearly into American consciousness. End quote. It is quite likely that, had Cass implemented his policy of popular sovereignty, if elected president, similar chaos and violence would ensue. Cass's support for popular sovereignty meant that he also obviously opposed the Wilmot Proviso. As the Indiana University Bloomington article titled Presidential Campaigns, A Cartoon History, 1789-1976-1848, mentions, when running for president in 1848, Cass expressly opposed the Wilmot Proviso and was called a, quote, doughface, end quote, which was a nickname used for Northerners with Southern perspectives on slavery. This should have come as no surprise, since, as Paul Egan's article in the Detroit Free Press titled Whitmer Strips Name of Slave Owner Lewis Cass from State Office Building, Cass was even personally an enslaver himself. As with the other bigoted positions that Cass took during his public life, he was rewarded for his pro-slavery and pro-popular sovereignty platform. According to the University of Michigan article titled Lewis Cass Papers, 1774-1924, to during the 1848 presidential election, Douglas reassured Cass in a letter that Southerners were, quote, satisfied with your views on the slavery question, as well as all others, end quote. According to the Detroit News article titled Lewis Cass, Michigan's Most Accomplished Governor, when famous poet Walt Whitman, who was an editor of the Brooklyn Eagle, a newspaper catering to the Democratic Party, wrote an editorial critical of Cass, considering Cass to be a, quote, doughface, end quote, Whitman was fired for the editorial. As Christopher Childers explains in the Journal of the Civil War Era article titled Of Presidential Campaigns and Partisan Press Journalism in the Elections of 1848 and 2016, quote, Cass strived mightily to steer a middle course on the issue of slavery and its extension in the West, and he enlisted his allies in the Democratic press for assistance. Obtaining the Mexican Cession, a territory that today encompasses part or all of seven states, as the spoils of war had reintroduced the slavery issue into politics. 
He proposed to let the people in the territories determine the future of slavery, an idea that became known as popular sovereignty. Cass unveiled his policy via a common practice in the era. He sent a letter to a political associate who promptly arranged for its publication in the Washington Union, the Democratic Party's mouthpiece. Cass knew that popular sovereignty would work and win him the presidency only if Northerners believed it would prevent the spread of slavery and Southerners thought it would allow slaves to enter the session. Cass's campaign managers allegedly produced two versions of his campaign biography, one for the North and one for the South, that glossed the slavery issue to suit each section's preferences. Democratic Party editors could scorn Taylor as the friend of Southern institutions, while maintaining that General Cass is presented to the whole Union the same in the North as in the South, while never elaborating on what exactly Cass believed on the issue, end quote. However, for once in his public life, Cass was actually punished instead of rewarded for his white supremacist belief systems. In the presidential election of 1848, as explained in the Martin Van Buren National Park Service article titled Election of 1848, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, former Democratic United States President Martin Van Buren ran for president not as a Democrat, but rather as the nominee of the Free Soil Party, a political party dedicated to opposing the expansion of slavery. Van Buren, this article mentions, received 10% of the national popular vote, which was a major factor in ensuring that Whig presidential nominee Zachary Taylor was elected president in 1848 instead of Cass. As the history gone wilder, half history will travel, YouTube video titled Election of 1848, What Happened? Notes, while Van Buren's role in the election has been disputed by some historians, the presence of such a prominent Democratic politician as Van Buren in the presidential election of 1848 probably swayed Democratic voters, largely in the North, that opposed the expansion of slavery to vote for Van Buren instead of Cass. As Whelan aptly explained, quote, the slavery issue damaged Democratic presidential nominee Lewis Cass's prospects in 1848. Northern conscious Whigs, anti-slavery Democrats, and the radical reform New York Democratic faction, known as the Barn Burners, formed the Free Soil Party. The new party nominated former President Martin Van Buren and Charles Francis Adams, the son of the late John Quincy Adams, end quote. The Virginia Museum of History and Culture article titled Getting the Message Out, Presidential Campaign Memorabilia from the Collection of Alan A. Frey even states, quote, The Free Soil Party took away some northern votes that may have gone Democratic, end quote. The Michigan Day-by-Day Day article titled 1848 Lewis Cass Becomes Democratic Party's Presidential Candidate also aptly summarizes, quote, Lewis Cass won the Democratic Party's endorsement for president, but he would eventually lose the election due to a split vote among the Democrats. Martin Van Buren, who ran under the banner of the Free Soil Party, 
siphoned off enough anti-slavery Democratic votes to allow Zachary Taylor, the Whig candidate, to win, end quote. The irony of Van Buren essentially playing a role in causing Cass to lose the presidential election of 1848 is that slavery, as an issue, had largely been silenced on the national stage until the Mexican-American War, a conflict so vehemently supported by Cass, reignited tensions over slavery with the national debates surrounding the Wilmot Proviso. Had the Mexican-American War, a conflict that Cass had asserted that every Christian nation would have partaken in, been avoided, it is quite possible that Cass could have won the presidential election of 1848 due to the lack of any significant nationwide slavery debates. Cass clearly did not account on Van Buren taking a more morally courageous approach by unequivocally advocating for an end to the expansion of slavery. Cass presented a two-faced political platform on slavery, playing up his support for slavery in the South while downplaying it in the North. Van Buren, ultimately being a more ethical political figure than Cass, resulted in Cass finally being held accountable in the public sphere for his white supremacy. Cass's white supremacy in a nation controlled by many racist leaders may have ensured the success of Cass's career up until 1848. However, not all of the American people were as racist as he was. 10% of the American people that voted in 1848 chose Van Buren over Cass. Cass's 1848 presidential bid represents an inflection point, not only in his life, but in American political history. This marks the moment in which Cass was finally no longer rewarded for his white supremacy. On a broader scale, I believe this marked a turning point in which many of the American voters at large stopped rewarding white supremacist politicians nearly as much as they and their forebearers had done in the past. Towards the end of his life, Cass seemed to finally find his conscience. As the Detroit News article titled, Lewis Cass, Michigan's Most Accomplished Governor, illustrates, following his unsuccessful presidential bids, Cass was United States President James Buchanan's Secretary of State until 1860, when he, quote, resigned in protest of Buchanan's failure to protect federal interests in the South and failure to mobilize the federal military to put down threats of secession in southern states, end quote. As the New York Times archive article titled State of Affairs at Washington specifies, Cass, breaking his sword in disgust, resigned over Buchanan's failure, quote, to reinforce Fort Moultrie in South Carolina, end quote. In the midst of the secession crisis, Cass demonstrated a commitment to preserving the Union that Buchanan would have been wise to follow. Cass took the secession crisis seriously, perhaps as a result of him finally listening 
to none other than wool. According to the University of Michigan article titled Lewis Cass Papers, 1774 to 1924, in late 1816, it was in an unofficial letter from wool in which South Carolina secession and the imperative for troops protect the fort at Charleston, South Carolina, were discussed. I believe the fort that Woolen Cass corresponded about to be none other than Fort Moultrie, which, according to the National Park Service article titled Fort Sumter and Fort Moultrie, was just off the coast of Charleston. The very same fort that Cass resigned over Buchanan's failure to protect seems to be the fort that Wool told Cass was important to protect. Cass finally took Wool's advice and left public office as a better man for it. During the Civil War, according to the University of Michigan article titled Lewis Cass Papers, 1774 to 1924, Cass issued a request to United States President Abraham Lincoln, quote, that he parole two of Elizabeth Cass's nephews, who were Confederate officers, June 30th, 1864. Going against his standard policy, Lincoln agreed to the parole out of respect for Cass, end quote. Despite Cass's loyalty to the Union during the Civil War, he had used his power and influence throughout his time as a politician largely to promote white supremacist beliefs Yet, despite that, Cass continues to be honored throughout Michigan, as Jerry Congleton details in the Lansing State Journal article titled, Cities, Buildings, Named for Lewis Cass, A Wrong to Native Americans That Must Be Corrected. Quote, Cities, roads, and bodies of water all across Michigan are named to honor Lewis Cass, appointed governor of the Michigan Territory in 1813, when most of the land belonged primarily to the Native Americans. Cass negotiated 20 different treaties with Native tribes, coercing them to hand over thousands of acres of land to the United States. As Egan recounts, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer announced in 2020 that she would be renaming a state office building named after Cass, the Elliott Larson Building, in honor of, quote, Daisy Elliott, a Detroit Democrat, and former state representative Mel Larson, an Oxford Republican. They were the main sponsors of the bill banning racial and other forms of discrimination, end quote. It is fitting that Cass's name on this building should be replaced by individuals that advocated for civil rights measures that undermined Cass's white supremacist institutions in Michigan. As documented by Egan, quote, Though he was an important figure in Michigan's history, Cass owned a slave, defended a system that would permit the expansion of slavery, and, under Jackson, implemented a policy that forcibly removed Native communities from their tribal lands. In what was known as the Trail of Tears, Whitmer said, Today's order is a small but meaningful step forward as we seek to better express our shared values. End quote. However, 
Cass's legacy remains very powerful and influential within Michigan, as Congleton details, with at least 10 other locations in Michigan being named after him. Cass will always be a part of history. However, we do not have to continue to honor and reward his role in history. Rewarding Cass for his white supremacist belief systems was a mistake made by too many Americans during his time. We should not make that same mistake as well. I am Paxton Phillips, and this is Politics with Paxton. Thank you for listening to Politics with Paxton. Please follow me on Twitter at PoliticsWPaxton, where you'll find all the latest news, updates, and episodes of Politics with Paxton.